This is the new mantra in the exercise world is any movement is better than no movement. So, you know, if you're someone who loves exercise and loves high intensity and vigorous exercise and you get those endorphins flowing from it, great. Mix it up, do some yoga, do some high intensity exercise, do some running, being mindful again of your joints and the things that do change as you get older. But if you're someone who is never gonna go to a gym and really just needs to get moving, then I would say do what you can that you're gonna keep doing because that's the key. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? What if I told you that sugary foods aren't the only driver of insulin resistance? Many of us attribute weight gain solely to slow metabolic rate, but the reality is that weight is influenced by dozens of other lifestyle factors. The media often misrepresent the term hormone balance, leaving women without adequate advice to address menopausal symptoms. In fact, certain foods can mitigate hot flushes, yet they are the same foods often torn apart by the media. I, I'm Dr. Gil Blander. Welcome back to another episode of Longevity by Design. In this episode, I interview Dr. Jennifer Lovejoy, a seasoned translational scientist. Dr. Lovejoy brings her expertise in nutrition and behavioral change to offer listeners a deep dive into the science of hormone balance and metabolic health. She discussed many common misconceptions surrounding hormone health, metabolic health, and weight gain even touches on some of the pawns and cons of GLP-1 agonists, considered to be a wonder drug for weight loss, toward the end of the episode. This conversation was very interesting. I think this episode will greatly benefit women, as well as anyone interested in understanding how hormones impact women's health. Enjoy the discussion, and don't forget to rate and review the podcast. Thank you so much. Hello. I'm Ashley Reaver, and I'm joined by Dr. Gil Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design, How to Live a Longer, Healthier Life. We're produced by Inside Tracker, your science-based guide to optimizing your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Lovejoy. Dr. Lovejoy has spent her career focused on personalized nutrition and lifestyle behavior change. Jennifer earned her PhD in biological psychology from Emory University and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in endocrinology and metabolism at Emory University School of Medicine. During her academic career, she was a professor of diabetes at the Pennington Biomedical Research Center of LSU and served as dean of the School of Nutrition and Exercise Science at Bastyr University. She's a past president of the Obesity Society and has published over 90 peer-reviewed research papers. More recently, Dr. Lovejoy was Chief Translational Science Officer at Aravel, a scientific wellness startup integrating multiomic data with behavioral coaching, and the Head of Science at 7.me, a digital health startup developing a behavioral AI platform. She currently runs a consulting company, Integral Science, LLC. We are so excited to have you today. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Jennifer. And again, it's a, a pleasure to have you today, as uh, Ashley mentioned. And we always uh, like to start uh, by asking our uh, guest uh, to provide a, a brief introduction and specifically what uh, made you to become a scientist. Yeah, I, um, my father was a scientist, I think, and that was part of it. I've, I've always been interested in science. I initially wanted to be a marine biologist, and that was my focus, but I got very interested in behavior and human health, and that ultimately led to me you know, going into both getting the degree in physiological or biological psychology, as well as going into clinical research. So I've always been fascinated by the complexity of the human organism, and particularly how the mind and body work together to contribute to health or lack of health. So I would say probably since I was very small, I knew that science was my my calling and that system science in particular was was going to be where I would end up. Awesome. 
Well, we're going to dive straight into questions, definitely involving system science um, in a topic that you have a lot of experience and expertise in, endocrinology, women's health, and menopause. Um, and the first question is pretty broad. So the term of hormone imbalance is used pretty frequently, but its precise meaning may not be understood by the general population. So could you start by providing a comprehensive explanation of what hormone balance actually entails? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and as you said, it's really a, a broad one. And I think there it's hard to nail down a specific definition. But what it usually means is that there is some, uh, some change in a hormone level. And we have over 50 hormones in our body. So it's pretty complicated when you really start to think about it. And either that hormone is too low or too high. Um, in some cases, it may actually be a, a true imbalance. And, and menopause, which I know we're going to be talking some more about, you might think about an imbalance between estrogen, which is, or estradiol, which is a type of estrogen, and progesterone, where perhaps one is too high relative to the other one, and that can be an imbalance. But I think generally the term just means you have a level that is too high or too low in a particular hormone for a healthy body. And the uh... Jennifer, what are, what are the other underlying mechanisms of uh, hormonal uh, imbalance? Can you give us uh, a few examples? Yeah, actually, there's, there's really two sort of categories about it. I mean, a lot of times it is simply part of the natural life cycle. So again, if we think about women's health, uh, going through puberty, getting pregnant, going through menopause, those are all times of hormonal imbalance that are, are normal parts of, of the female life cycle. In men, you know, there is a natural, more gradual change in hormones that happens over the lifespan. But again, it's a natural part of, you know, just changing throughout life from, from younger to, to older age. Then there are other things that are not part of the natural life cycle that can be mechanisms that drive this. So anything from lack of sleep or, or chronic stress, which would cause an, an increase in cortisol and, and those sorts of changes. It might be a medication that someone is taking or, or a medical condition. Something like diabetes uh, is clearly a condition that causes a, a hormonal imbalance in insulin and, and then in blood sugar regulation. So I think there are both sort of what I would call natural lifespan causes and also things that are more external and, and therefore perhaps a little bit more under people's control uh, in terms of, of bringing hormones back into balance. Yeah, and uh, I think that a good example that uh, both myself and Ashley have seen in the past is the young women that are uh, exercising a lot and they uh, don't eat enough and basically lose a lot of uh, fat and suddenly they are... They are <laughs> Literally, in, uh, getting into menopause a bit earlier than they're supposed to be. That's right. And they are really surprised about that. So even some uh, over-exercise can do that. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah, that changes the hormone balance. And even though there are so many different hormones out there, 50 that you said, are there some common signs or symptoms of hormonal imbalance that individuals should be aware of? Yeah, I think it's tricky to really talk about common signs across everything because there are so many, but I would say there are certainly some, some well-recognized and common signs of specific hormonal imbalances. So when we think, for example, about menopause, the loss of estrogen and, and progesterone, hot flashes and other menopausal symptoms are, are very common signs that are indicative of, of a hormonal imbalance there. Um, low thyroid hormone is also something that is very commonly associated with symptoms like fatigue and uh, changes in weight and uh, dry skin, those kinds of things. So it really depends on the hormone that you are, are looking at. But I would say with, with a specific hormone, there could be some very common symptoms that, that someone could recognize. And um, estradiol, as you mentioned before, is a form of estrogen that... Um women have in high amounts, typically in earlier periods of life. Um, is there any benefit for women in particular tracking this biomarker over the course of their lifetime? Yeah, I mean, est estradiol is just the most amazing hormone. It affects so many parts of the body. I mean, we, we think about it normally in terms of reproduction, right? That, that estradiol is that, that hormone that helps to, to maintain the eggs in the ovary. Of course, it's produced in the ovary. It, it maintains the uterine lining so that a woman can get pregnant. Um, and, you know, you really see those fluctuations in the hormone across the menstrual cycle. So one reason why women may want to track it during their reproductive years 
is if they are trying to conceive or if they're um, having trouble with fertility, understanding how their estradiol levels are fluctuating across the course of the cycle can give them insights into what may be going on with them. Um, similarly, apart from conception, but during the reproductive age, uh, women who struggle with PMS, with, with symptoms associated with the menstrual period, may find it beneficial to track hormones like estradiol, um, which can be imbalanced, and, and that can be a cause sometimes of, of the PMS. And then as women get a little bit older and get into that, what we call perimenopause, which is are the you know, up to 10 years preceding the actual onset of menopause, that's when estradiol levels can get a little wacky. Um, they, they can fluctuate very wildly. You can have huge spikes. You can have big drops. It can change very rapidly. And research has shown that those changes in estradiol, um, as well as some of the changes in progesterone, may be tied to symptoms that women start to experience as they move into perimenopause and menopause. So often just understanding what's going on with your hormones during that perimenopausal period can be really helpful for a woman to, a woman to target what's happening and how they might be able to balance things out. Now, I think once you move into menopause, so you've stopped having a period, your hormones have dropped, at that point, your estradiol levels are going to be consistently very low. They're typically not measurable by standard assays. And so unless someone is interested in starting a hormone therapy or really looking at that, I don't know if there's a whole lot of benefit in, in tracking postmenopause. But, but in those cases where, where one does want to start hormones, that can be something to, to monitor over time for sure to make sure that the, the levels that you're getting are where you and your physician want them to be. Excellent. And what about TSH? And specifically, what is the benefit for women tracking it? And also, why women have much more issue with the thyroid than male? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. So, so TSH, that's thyroid stimulating hormone. This is the hormone that is produced by the pituitary gland, and it causes the thyroid gland in your neck to secrete it's thyroid hormones, which um, have a lot of important functions in the body. So when TSH is imbalanced, either high or low, it's responding to the fact that something's going on with your thyroid and you're either secreting too much or too little thyroid hormone. And as you said, women are much more prone to thyroid problems. In fact, um, they have five to eight times more of a likelihood of having a thyroid problem than men. And this is especially common at midlife. And there's a particular kind of autoimmune thyroid disease called Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is very common in perimenopausal women. And so tracking thyroid hormone, tracking TSH is important in general, just to make sure that your, your thyroid hormone is, is functioning. But where I found it's particularly important, again, as women get into their 40s and into that perimenopausal and menopausal age range, is that the symptoms of thyroid hormone deficiency mimic the symptoms of menopause. And so many women think, so you might have fatigue, you might have weight gain, you might have trouble concentrating, what people refer to as brain fog. Um, all of those things are very common symptoms of menopause, even hot flashes, but they can also be a symptom of low thyroid hormone levels. So it's really important to understand what's causing the symptoms, not to just assume, oh, I'm feeling this way because of menopause, and actually there's something going on with your thyroid. And that's where tracking TSH can be very important. So, so what you are saying that in the transition phase or the perimenopause, it's uh, it's really crucial to measure those because then you will know what uh, what is the cause and what is the effect, and don't assume that it's because of the menopause. What about uh, pre-menopausal or post-menopausal? How important is it to measure uh, uh, TSH? Well, I think it's important simply because of that really high ratio of, of risk in, in women. And so it's not that thyroid disease is always going to occur at midlife. It, could, it can occur much earlier in life. It can occur later in life. And so just knowing what your thyroid level is normally, how, how you track that. Um, TSH does change with age. So you know, knowing it, it actually tends to increase a bit with age, and that may be fine. But again, knowing your baseline level and where you're going with it, and it's also genetically influenced. So it's unique to you. My normal level may be different from yours. And um, you know, so that's something that if you track it, you'll know that. And is it influenced by menopause at all, or just happens to sometimes coincide with those changes that typically happen in the 40, the 50 age range anyways? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. It, most of the time it appears that it's independent, but the, the endocrine system is so interrelated that I think there's, there's a good likelihood that in some cases it is that either the fluctuation in hormones or the, or the absolute drop in estrogen and progesterone that may be a trigger in some cases for thyroid problems. Very interesting. Um, in a past podcast that we had with Dr. Jennifer Garrison, um, we discussed a bit about what happens to a woman's hormones during perimenopause as well as after that date of menopause. But we didn't go super deep into some of the symptoms that are associated with those hormonal changes, which we've started to touch on a little bit today. Um, and in particular, how women can help to mitigate some of those side effects. Um, to start, weight gain or waist gain at menopause is something that's really commonly reported. Um, so we're hoping you can give a little insight on maybe why this happens and perhaps what women can do to help prevent or minimize it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's one of the things that women do get most concerned about, uh, apart from the the hot flashes, which is the other big one, um, is is this change often an increase in in weight or easier gaining weight um, when they maybe have been able to manage their weight effectively prior to menopause. And then particularly getting, noticing getting a little bit larger around the waist, maybe the waistband of the pants fitting a little bit tighter. Um, and those really are hormonally driven changes. So one of the things that estradiol does is it has a regulatory effect on both appetite and on metabolic rate. So um, when you are premenopause and you have higher levels of estradiol, that's going to keep your appetite under control. It's also going to maintain a higher level of um, your, your calorie burning, your metabolic rate. And so we did a study actually at the Pennington Center where we followed women through the menopause transition and looked at what happened not only to their metabolic rate, but also to their behavior, to their diet, to their physical activity, their voluntary physical activity. And what we found is that post-menopause, metabolic rate dropped by about 100 calories a day and interestingly, voluntary physical activity also dropped by about 100 to 150 calories a day. Mm -hmm. So you're burning less at rest and you're moving less. So you're burning um, so that you're in this positive calorie balance, which is really what in many cases explains the weight gain. It doesn't take a lot of calorie imbalance over the years to, to result in, in pretty significant weight gain. And so 200 to 250 calories is, is not trivial. It sounds small, but it really can result in some weight gain. So the good thing about that is if you're prepared for that, if you realize that, that menopause is going to be resulting in this drop because your hormones are changing, then you can be proactive, particularly around physical activity, but also diet in order to try to maintain a calorie balance. So this probably means, you know, adding a bit of additional physical activity to, to burn more calories, probably adding more strength training if someone isn't already doing that so that they can build muscle mass and that will help to, to boost your basal metabolic rate a bit. Um, so on the on the weight side, that there are things you can do, and I think you can effectively manage it. On the waist side, the waist circumference side, um, it's a bit harder because uh, estradiol controls, along with testosterone, um, where your fat gets distributed. So in the premenopausal years, fat tends to be preferentially distributed in the hips and thighs, that lower body fat, which is better for getting pregnant and not so harmful on health. After menopause, when the estradiol drops, there's more testosterone. There are more other hormones that are causing the fat to be deposited in the abdomen. And that's what causes that abdominal fat gain. It is not something you can exercise away. I, I've had women say, you know, can I just do more crunches or, you know, something? And unfortunately, you know, just maintaining an overall healthy weight and an overall healthy lifestyle and, and maybe learning a bit of acceptance and, and self-compassion is the best that I can offer about the, the waste gain part of it. Any uh, relationship to everything that you discussed uh, right now to glucose uh, regulation or metabolism? Any any effect of that or any changing in that during uh, the menopause uh, transition? Yeah, uh, so... Insulin resistance, which essentially means that your, your body becomes less responsive, your cells become less responsive to the hormone insulin, which normally drives sugar out of the blood and into the cells, is one of the things that changes at menopause with the hormone changes. So women become more insulin resistant. The risk of developing diabetes or prediabetes increases after menopause because of that change. So it definitely does have an impact on, on glucose regulation. And 
again, this is something where diet and physical activity can play an important role in helping to, to offset some of those changes in insulin resistance and glucose regulation that happen at menopause. Um, we know, for example, that aerobic exercise in particular is very good at um, improving insulin sensitivity. So kind of overcoming that, that insulin resistance and a high fiber, uh, lower saturated fat diet is also uh, very effective for mitigating insulin resistance. So there are things that women can do. So, so uh, if I'm trying to translate what you're saying, uh, during the, uh, uh, the menopause transition, women tend to have higher concentration of insulin in their uh, bloodstream in comparison to uh, premenopausal women? Yes. Yeah. To the extent that, that the insulin is a reflection of, of insulin resistance, and it usually is yeah. actually just measuring a fasting insulin is a, is a pretty good indicator of insulin resistance. So yeah, if that, insulin levels go up yeah. through the menopause transition. And, and I assume that, ju just to be sure, also the chance of uh, becoming diabetic or pre-diabetic increased significantly during this transition. Yes. Yep. Okay. Okay. That, that's good to know. And I'm asking those questions because we are working right now of adding uh, insulin as a biomarker uh, in InstaTracker. And sounds like it uh, will be very relevant for uh, women health. So it's good to know. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think it's really important. And again, so actionable because it's, it's so driven by our, our lifestyle and our body weight. And so there's a lot of things that we can do to help you know, mitigate the increase in insulin that might be hormone driven. Excellent. Really interesting. Outside of weight gain or waist gain being one of the really commonly reported side effects or symptoms of menopause, hot flashes you also mentioned. Are there any nutrition or lifestyle approaches that could help women manage symptoms like hot flashes or maybe any other menopausal symptoms? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a very common question. Uh, hot flashes and and night sweats, which is just the nighttime version of hot flashes, uh, are usually the most bothersome because they interfere with sleep. They can be very embarrassing. You're sitting in a meeting and suddenly you're drenched in sweat. And, you know, so it really interferes with women's productivity, their ability to work and, and many other things. So they're very, very concerned about this. Depending on the individual, and I've seen very individual responses to this. So people have to experiment. There may be some things that you can do with diet. So on the adding to your diet side, the thing that has been shown to have some efficacy is soy foods. So soy uh, soybeans contain a plant estrogen, phytoestrogen, that in some cases can actually help, you know, provide enough estrogen that the hot flashes are are minimized or or even eliminated. So things like, uh, you know, roasted soybeans, the edamame, adding tofu, maybe soy milk, those kinds of things can can be very helpful to women in the perimenopause and menopause years to to try to offset it. Foods that tend to trigger hot flashes, so again, things you might want to avoid or experiment with avoiding, include spicy foods, alcohol, mm -hmm. and caffeine. So those, again, are things that some women find tremendous success by avoiding or you know completely eliminating those things from their diet while the hot flashes are, are bothersome. And the good news about hot flashes is they usually don't last forever, but they can last a really long time and, and much longer than, than women want. Um, on the exercise side, there's some pretty good studies that have shown that getting regular exercise reduces the frequency of hot flashes. So again, we're just talking moderate daily exercise, which is good for you know your health and many other things too, um, but that can help to reduce hot flashes and some of the other symptoms of menopause too. So, you know, it's, it's not just the hot flashes. It can be fatigue. It can be that brain fog. Um, you know, it helps to manage stress when you get regular exercise and eat a healthy diet. So so those are things that have been shown to be effective. I will say that, unfortunately, lifestyle alone is not enough for, for a lot of women. So they may end up needing to explore um, you know, either dietary supplements that have a more concentrated version of the phytoestrogens, things like black cohosh that you can buy um, over the counter, um, or actually talking to a physician. And a lot of women don't realize that there are options other than hormone therapy today for, for hot flashes. So they say, oh, I'm not going to you know, talk to my doctor because I don't want to go on hormones. Well, in fact, there, you may not have to. There, there are other drugs that can be used to specifically to help manage the menopausal symptoms that your doctor could give you some advice about. Um, and the last thing that is really interesting, and, and my behavioral scientist loves this, 
is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a widely um, used approach for depression and anxiety and those sorts of things. There's actually been a cognitive behavioral therapy approach developed specifically for hot flashes, and it's been shown in several studies to be very effective at reducing the frequency and the severity of hot flashes. So a lot of it is is how you think about it, how you respond to it, and um, that can actually influence the physiology, that mind-body connection, and and how it works. So that's also worth exploring if a woman is really having a, a problem with it and doesn't want to go the medication route. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, and uh, maybe my uh, follow-up question is, what about the gut microbiome? Can uh, a woman take a specific uh, a strain of uh, uh, bacteria and help and that might help her with those uh, symptom or it's uh, still not in that stage yeah unfortunately it's still not in that stage uh, what we do know is that the gut microbiome changes at menopause in fact many people don't realize that men and women have different microbiome patterns there, there's a sex difference across the lifespan um, between men and women and at menopause when the when the female hormones go down the gut microbiome in women becomes more like the gut microbiome in men. And that has some accompanying physiological changes. Um, it also, the gut microbiome at menopause goes down in diversity, uh, the, the microbe diversity. And we know that that's a really important thing for health and something that can be influenced by dietary fiber um, particularly. So we don't have a, a magic um, strain, a probiotic, something you can take that, that would offset this. But I think it's important for, for women to realize that the gut changes at menopause. Uh, many women do experience some gut symptoms and, and may not relate that to menopause, but it could be possibly due to these gut microbiome shifts. And the, really the best thing overall you can do for your gut microbiome is just eat a lot of plants, eat a lot of whole foods, veggies, fruits, whole grains, um, and stay away from the processed stuff. And that's going to boost your diversity and it's going to give you the healthiest microbiome pattern. Yeah, excellent. And and the, the reason for that is, I assume, because they, they are high in fiber? High in fiber, yes. Yeah, okay. Compounds itself, when a, you know weight gain happens, people tend to go, okay, I'm going to go low carb, I'm going to drastically increase my animal protein intake, right. cut out all of this other stuff. Uh, so that's a great message of just, you know, balancing all of that. Exactly. I will say that literally the worst gut microbiome pattern I ever saw in our research was somebody who was following a very strict paleo diet and mostly ate meat and, and hardly ate any carbohydrates. And he had the lowest gut diversity and the most unhealthy balance that that we'd seen. <laughs> he was definitely an outlier from that. So so yeah, fiber Fiber is your friend because you want to keep those gut microbes happy. And, uh, and relevant to women's health, the other thing that's interesting about the gut microbiome at menopause, those bugs in your gut also produce estrogen. They actually recycle estrogen as it's being metabolized by the liver. And so one of the ways that you can maintain a healthier estrogen level after menopause and maybe even mitigate some of the symptoms of menopause is by having those microbes doing their job producing some low levels of different kinds of estrogens as they recycle it. And so, so there's really a, a bi-directional interaction between the gut and the hormones at menopause that, that can be brought into balance and, and really help women get through that transition. Interesting. And you, you briefly mentioned, but I, I would like to go deeper into that, and that's the exercise and the, the benefit of a, a physical activity in the regulation of those hormones and uh, actually in overall health, specifically for uh, women and specifically in a different stage of, the, of, their, of their life. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So exercise, I, back to sort of the hormone balance question that we talked about in the beginning. So you want that estrogen because it does all kinds of good things for you, but you don't want too much estrogen because too much estrogen is problematic. And one of the reasons it's problematic is it can stimulate certain kinds of cancers like breast cancer. Um, so you, you really want to keep your female hormones in balance and exercise is one way to do that. So, so regular exercise and particularly higher intensity exercise actually helps to lower estrogen, estradiol levels into a, a healthier zone. And so that can be very helpful for, for women's health overall. Now, again, you talked earlier about the excessive exercise and how that actually drives estradiol too low. So that's, that's a problem for, for female athletes if they lose too much um, and they're younger and lose too much body fat. 
it's also not something you want at perimenopause and postmenopause because you know you're you're already trying to offset that drop in in estrogens that are happening because of menopause but it does help reduce your risk it's one of the reasons that, that exercise reduces your risk for cancer is because of its effect on on sex hormones um the other way or another way that exercise is really helpful in thinking about hormonal health and women's health is the effect on cortisol the stress hormone so one of the things I learned in my my research on menopause, and and I was in my 30s when I was doing this research and, and working with these women, and I have to say it was a little bit daunting because they were very stressed. They were, you know, it's that time of life when you're dealing with aging parents, you're dealing with kids leaving home, you know, maybe having relationship challenges if you've been in a relationship for a while. So So lots of things seem to coalesce at, at midlife around things that can cause a lot of, of stress for women. And so being able to effectively manage that stress, because if you become chronically stressed and your cortisol levels become chronically high um, or, or imbalanced throughout the day, then that actually makes the transition into menopause much more difficult. There's an interaction again. It's all interrelated between cortisol and your estrogen and progesterone. So exercise we know is a brilliant way to help to lower your cortisol levels as long as you don't do too too intense, um, but moderate exercise will lower your cortisol levels. And many people, men and women, report that that is one of the major ways they they manage stress. So, so that's a really important thing. And then the third one that I would bring up is strength training. So you, you've got the aerobic side of it, which is really helping your insulin resistance and your cortisol and all those things. But as we age and as we go through menopause on the women's side, um, we lose muscle mass. And muscle mass, of course, is very important for maintaining metabolic rate, that thing that helps us burn calories and manage our overall body weight. So adding some strength training, if you're not already doing it, or, or you know, really focusing on that part of your workout can help to maintain your metabolism and your metabolic rate as you age. And so those are all things that would contribute to, to women's health through exercise. Yeah. And uh, Jennifer, I, I have to repeat the last point that you said, because it's so important. And you see it uh, when you go to the gym, women are going to Pilates, Pilates and uh, uh, doing yoga, but you don't see a lot of them, especially women in the, let's say, a bit older age, uh, uh, lifting weight. And that's a, a big mistake because as Jennifer said, we, uh, women are losing uh, muscle. Everyone losing muscle, but women as well. And right. you need to build it back and it's much harder to build it. Because you need to spend more time there. And uh, don't be shy, go and uh, uh, lift the weight because that's a, a great way to relieve some of the symptoms of the menopause or menopause transition, but also allow you to live better longer. So absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I love this point. It's, uh, it's so true. Yeah. What about for higher intensity in that perimenopausal or postmenopausal period? Should women that perhaps have been endurance athletes their entire life start to rethink how much of that high intensity activity they're doing? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of mixing it up. And I, I think one of the the mistakes that that we all tend to make because we get, you know, as humans, we get stuck in a rut and we just, you know, we keep doing things that, you know, oh, well, I ate this way when I was 20, so I can just keep eating this way now that I'm 50 or whatever. Um, same with exercise. If you've been doing the same thing for a while, I think it's very physiologically beneficial to to mix it up. And we have to remember that as we are getting older, some of the things that we have done in the past don't always work for us anymore. They're, they're not as, as healthy, actually. They can cause more damage. I've, I've known a lot of people who were lifelong runners, long distance runners who, you know, their knees gave out. I knew one extremely healthy athlete who had to have a hip replaced, two hip replacements in his early 40s because he had just, you know, just been too hard on his joints. Now he bikes. Um, so I think, you know, really thinking about the body, what's going on with your body. High intensity exercise is not for everyone. The, you know, I, I've spent so much of my career working with patients with obesity and also people who maybe weren't particularly motivated to exercise and trying to get them to engage in any sort of movement. You know, that this is the new mantra in the exercise world is any movement is better than no movement. So, you know, if you're someone who loves exercise and loves high intensity and vigorous exercise and you get those endorphins flowing from it, great. Mix it up, do some yoga, do some high intensity exercise, do some running, you know, being mindful again of your joints and the things that do change as you get older. But if you're someone who is never going to go to a gym 
and, you know, really just needs to get moving, then I would say, you know, do what you can that you're going to keep doing because that's the key. People start exercise programs and then they just stop them. We want something that people are going to do for their whole life, that really into their 90s, into their hundreds, that, that they can keep modifying the plan and keep doing it, but somehow get moving, get that blood flowing, get those chemicals moving to the brain that keep you young for life. And again, just to emphasize that, uh, it's so important to uh, choose an exercise that you like. If you like uh, dancing, go and dance. If you like yoga, yes, do yoga. But on top of that, try to pepper in even once a week, go and uh, lift some weight because it's so yep. important. Yeah. And, you know, the, the home version of that for people who don't belong to a gym or don't want to go to a gym, soup cans, water bottles. You know, you can you can do that. You can buy some exercise bands, resistance bands that you can use at home. But yes, anything that you can do that is going to a couple times a week, work out those muscles, upper body and lower body and, and keep your muscle mass is really important, especially the older we get. Awesome. And I'm going to throw in a curveball question because my next one was about cortisol and you answered it. Um, soy, I know you mentioned a few times and there seems to be a chunk of people that are women in particular, although definitely men that are very, very resistant to incorporating soy into their diet. Um, and, you know, female side of that is because perhaps it can increase estrogen levels, as you mentioned slightly. Would you mind speaking on that a little bit just to maybe allay some fears that people have about incorporating edamame and tofu into their diet is, you know. Most likely yep. not going to be something that is detrimental for their health. Absolutely. So um, there, there's two reasons that I've heard that people are resistant to adding soy. Um, the, the first is, is one that you mentioned that they're worried it's going to raise their estrogen too much and it, you know, maybe it's going to increase their risk of cancer or something like that. Um, the thing to realize there is that the types of estrogens, these plant estrogens, actually have a different molecular structure than the estrogens that our body produces. So they will bind to the receptors, but they do it in a lower level way that doesn't seem to cause that, you know, what potentially cancer stimulating um, action of something like estradiol, um, particularly a synthetic estradiol. So, um, so there have been literally dozens of studies that have looked to see whether soy-based estrogens in cell culture in mice and people have any effect on cells that could be adverse and could cause a potential growth of cancer. And they have pretty uniformly been negative. So, so I think from that standpoint, they really are safe because they are, again, it's a different type of estrogen, these, these plant estrogens, and you're getting them with all the other components of the food, with the fiber, with the other, you know, compounds, the beneficial phyto compounds that are in that food. So, so that also helps to balance things out. So, um, you know, I, I think when I when I've talked to women who actually have a history of breast cancer, and I think this is where clinicians are, are often on the line. They're like, yeah, I absolutely recommend it to someone. But if they've had a history of breast cancer or, or another hormone dependent cancer and they're worried about it, you know, maybe for those women, it's not ideal or, or they may feel more comfortable avoiding it. But just simply if you're worried about the risk, it doesn't the, the evidence doesn't bear that out. The other common myth about soy is that it's going to hurt your thyroid. And, and this came from a, some studies that were done mostly in sheep um, that showed that if you ate a bunch of red clover, which happens to be something that is also very high in estrogens, phytoestrogens, and sheep really like it, um, it can have an effect on thyroid. It, again, has been studied multiple times in humans and has been found that soy has absolutely no effect, even in, like, no one is going to eat that much tofu <laughs> that is going to actually get <laughs> or even theoretically could have an effect on thyroid. So uh, I tell people, just don't worry about it. It's not going to hurt your thyroid. And the benefits you're going to get from soy, from, from all kinds of things, I think really outweigh, you know, these hypothetical risks, which really haven't been proven to be true in humans. It, it reminds me the resveratrol and the red wine that right. uh, in order to receive the right amount of resveratrol, you need to drink maybe 500 bottles of red wine. So, <laughs> I'm exactly. not sure that you will be, you will be alive after that. It might not be beneficial. Right. <laughs> um, so so uh, we would like to switch gear. And actually, that was a fascinating discussion about uh, women's health. And thank you so much for uh, uh, doing that, we'd like to now switch gear. You have so many expertise and moving into metabolism and uh, health span, which is uh, definitely a, a subject that uh, very close to my heart. 
And uh, um, first, we'd like to uh, start with the definition of uh, metabolism. And it's, it's now literally a buzzword. Everyone is saying it and nobody knows what he's talking about. So how do you define metabolism? Yeah, you're right. It's a buzzword. I, you know, I think the easiest way to explain it scientifically is metabolism is all about energy. It's how you are using energy, producing energy, converting energy. And it's, it's actually a cellular term. I mean, this is going on in your cells when you breathe, when you use your muscles. All of those things are exchanging and converting metabolic energy. And so that's what we mean scientifically when we talk about metabolism. It's also about how you convert the food that you eat into energy, which is what we do with food. And so I think a lot of times in popular culture, when people are talking about metabolism, they're really thinking about the food to energy part of it. But um, if you just think metabolism equals energy, that's going to go a long way. Pulling in the other side of your expertise too, going back to the endocrine system, how does the endocrine system and the metabolic system, can you explain that relationship between the two of them? Yeah. So a lot of the hormones that we've been talking about actually do influence metabolism. So we talked a little bit about thyroid hormone and how uh, one of the symptoms of low thyroid hormone is that it, people often gain weight. Well, that's because thyroid hormone has a direct effect on your metabolism. It, it slows it down. And so when you are, are, you know, have that deficiency, you actually are having a slower metabolism and, and that can be corrected through, through the right intervention. There are other hormones and um, testosterone is one and growth hormone is one that have some direct effect, but they also might have an indirect effect. So testosterone, we know, helps you build muscle. And muscle is one of the things that drives metabolism and, and helps to boost metabolic rates. So when you have adequate levels of testosterone, you're going to have more, you know, a, a healthier metabolism if your testosterone levels drop, which can happen with aging in men um, and women, then it, that can actually change your metabolism. So almost all the hormones that we've talked about, insulin, cortisol, thyroid, um, do have either a direct or an indirect effect on metabolism. Estrogen as well, estrogen and progesterone, um, your metabolism uh, in premenopausal women actually fluctuates throughout the, the menstrual cycle. You burn more calories at certain times in the menstrual cycle than you do at others. And that's because of those fluctuations in estradiol and progesterone. So, so there is definitely a, an interaction between hormones and metabolism. And what, what are the benefits of uh, being in an optimal uh, metabolic state? What, uh, what is the feeling, let's say, if uh, we can quantify it? How, how would you feel when you are in an optimal metabolic uh, uh, state? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And again, I think here we get into terminology that people throw around and, and may use differently. So there's metabolism that we've been talking about, the energy. There's also what gets referred to as metabolic health. And metabolic health is most commonly measured by looking at things like your weight, your blood sugar, and, and your, your blood fats, things like triglycerides and cholesterol and HDL. And so clearly there we know that if, if any of those things are, are out of whack, then you have risk for, for a variety of health conditions, right? Heart disease, diabetes, dementia, um, you know, most age-related chronic diseases are going to be related to one of those, you know, so-called metabolic markers. Um, but on the subjective side, what I think people experience, and this may be more what you're getting at, is when you're in optimal health, you have more energy, less fatigue, you're thinking clearly, and your mood tends to be better. So, so those are things that, that, you know, having that right again, metabolism equals energy. So if your energy is, is down and that may be because something is going on with your metabolism, if your metabolism is optimized, then you're going to have that energy you want to do the things in your life that you want to do. And how does that relate to health span overall? Um, obviously some of those things we know we want to be, we want them to be in an optimal range for as long as possible. Um, but what can happen long-term if those things are out of range? Well, I think we know that having a, a poor, poor metabolic health, I'll, I'll use that terminology, um, impacts both health span and lifespan. I mean, the, the, that's the reality. And, and it does impact quality of life even, you know, while you're still alive before you, you get to the final stages of it. So any of those conditions that I mentioned that are associated with, with poor metabolic health cardiovascular disease, 
diabetes, dementia, and cognitive decline. All of those things are really important for, for health span and for lifespan. Both directly related. And may, maybe let's, uh, let's try to dive deeper into that. So uh, what uh, diseases are related to poor uh, metabolic health? Um, so the, the, ones, the ones that I mentioned, for sure, uh, the one that I, I haven't really talked about is obesity. And so obesity is clearly a, a disorder of metabolism. We, we know that um, it's certainly these days, it's very clear that obesity is not a problem with people just eating too much and exercising too little. That, that is a myth that I think has you know, hopefully died a good death. Um, but it really is a physiological state of abnormal metabolism that has genetic components, you know, brain hormone components, body hormone components, you know, the, the, that fat tissue actually is a very active endocrine organ that influences how the body functions. And so that is the reason in many cases why obesity is a foundational cause of so many of these age-related chronic diseases. And again, heart disease, diabetes, dementia, those are all related to obesity. Now, can you be thin and still have poor metabolic health and have risk for those? Absolutely. And, and we see that as well. So it's, it's not that um, it, it's always associated with obesity, but that's certainly one of the common and in our society where we're looking at 70% of US adults being overweight or obese, certainly that's one of the major causes of shortened lifespan and shortened health span. Is there a single marker or single way that you like to measure metabolism? For example, we know ApoB is you know, one of the best markers you can measure for heart health. Is there anything like that that could look at metabolism as a whole? Yeah, probably the, the best measure, again, of actual metabolism, how much energy are you burning, um, is, is something that's called indirect calorimetry. This is, this is just a measure of your metabolic rate. And you, you put a little gas mask on and it's measuring the oxygen and the carbon dioxide that you're producing from your lungs. And from that, um, you can calculate how much energy you're burning at rest or during exercise. They can do it during exercise as well. And so I've, I've seen increasingly there are places, especially in cities where you can go and get your metabolic rate measure. There's even mobile vans that go around um, where you can do that. So this is something that I think is of a lot of interest for athletes. So, you know, we, we see that use because you want to know how much you're burning, you know, how, so you can tailor your training. I also think it can be very helpful for people who are trying to lose weight and having a hard time with it. So they they feel like they're not eating a lot of calories, they're, they're worried, you know, I hear this, oh, I just have a slow metabolism. Well, we can measure that and find out. In fact, often people who think they have a slow metabolism, turns out don't have a slow metabolism, but then you, you have the, the basis to, to troubleshoot it. So that's really the best way to measure metabolism. Again, depending where people live, they may or may not have access to that. But anyone can look at this broader category of metabolic health. So, so there's typically five things that are measured. It's your waist circumference, it's your blood sugar level, your blood pressure, and your uh, triglycerides and HDL cholesterol. So it's looking across that cardiovascular and um, blood sugar regulation system. And as long as all of those are, are in the healthy range, and, and those ranges are you, you can find anywhere, um, you probably are in pretty good metabolic health. That, that those are very good indicators of that. So, so again, it's really, are you looking to measure your metabolism, in which case that one measure that you get from the, the gas exchange is probably the best way to go. Or do you really want to look at your metabolic health, in which case those, those five um, markers, three blood markers and two that you can measure yourself at home, your weight and waist and uh, blood pressure are the best way to go. Yeah, and, and Jennifer, I, I, I just done this test, the BMR, Bison Metabolic Rate, Actually, at a DEXA location, so I assume that everyone that go to DEXA location, and maybe we can discuss DEXA, what is DEXA later, but it's also something that it's very interesting and giving you a lot of information, actually very relevant to our discussion. So yeah. I done that, the basal metabolic rate, but also the VO2 max test on the, as you said, as the athlete doing your yeah. run. And, and I absolutely agree with you. I think that that's a, a starting to have a higher and higher value also in the scientific side and the... I highly recommend our listener to um, to try it. And uh, by the way, now at InstaTracker, we're starting to look into that and integrating this data into InstaTracker, including the DEXA scan. Yeah. So I think that is, is definitely uh, very relevant. 
I want to carry on and uh, discuss uh, a bit, uh, and I know that we discussed it before. The, the question is the role that, that insulin in the body and how it affects the glucose function. Maybe we'll go a bit deeper into that. Sure. Yeah. So maybe let's let's start with the the basics. If if people aren't really familiar with this, so insulin is is a hormone that's produced by your pancreas, um, and it's one of its major functions is to clear glucose, sugar, out of the blood and into cells. So it, it, when, when the insulin levels are, are normal or healthy um, and they go up after a meal, what that's going to do is take that sugar that's coming into your blood after you ate that meal and it's going to drive it into cells so that your blood sugar is maintained in a healthy rate uh, range. What happens or what can happen in conditions ranging from excess body weight to physical inactivity, to stress, is you develop this condition that I talked about earlier called insulin resistance. And when that happens, your insulin, you're still producing insulin. In fact, you might be producing a lot of insulin, but it's not working to push the sugar out of the blood and into the cells. And over time, that's what leads to diabetes because it's just this consistent, um, the insulin is not working well and the sugar builds up in the blood and, and then you get all the effects that are associated with, with prediabetes and diabetes. So it's a very important metabolic hormone. It's also uh, what we call a, a building hormone. There, there's hormones that build and there's hormones that break down. And, and insulin is one of those, those building hormones like testosterone. So it's important for that, for maintaining our, our metabolism. And so those are some of the things that are, you know, just understanding how insulin works and why it's so important to regulate is in that so why and when it's, it's important to our listener to test their level of uh, uh, insulin? So as we talked a little bit about before, measuring your insulin is a really good indicator of your degree of insulin resistance. Um, if you measure it in the, in the fasting states, if you haven't had anything to eat, your insulin level should be low. Um, but if you're insulin resistant, it's actually going to be high or higher. And so, so it's a good single marker that you can use to track your insulin resistance. Why would you want to do that? Well, first of all, at baseline, you kind of want to know, am I insulin resistant or not? You know, what, what's going on with that? But then as you start to implement different lifestyle changes, you can continue to track it to see what's happening with your insulin resistance and, and your overall metabolism in regard to your blood sugar. And of course, tracking your blood sugar is important as well, but really looking at that over time. So say I start an exercise program and, and I want to see what that's doing to my, my insulin resistance. Well, I measure the insulin before and after, and, and I can look at it that way. Or if I change my diet, you know, there's, I will say one of the most common misperceptions about insulin that I hear from people in regard to lifestyle is this notion that what drives insulin is only carbohydrates and sugar. Um, and in fact, it's, there, there's a lot of um, myth around that. And often it is the dietary fats that drive insulin um, and particularly cause insulin resistance. So there, there's a sort of whole balance. I mean, yes, if you look at a single meal, you're going to get a bigger spike of an insulin and sugar after a high carbohydrate meal than a high fat meal. But if you look at it over three days or a week, your overall insulin level is actually going to go down on the high complex carbohydrate diet because your insulin sensitivity is improving. So um, I, I think there, there's a lot of confusion in the popular culture about that and about diet and insulin, but measuring your insulin is a way to, to find out what's really going on with your body because it's going to be different for everybody. And just to, uh, to tie it back to longevity, uh, looking at a model organism, a lot of data that show that when you attenuate the activity of the insulin pathway, you can see a dramatic increase in the lifespan in a lot of model organisms. So uh, absolutely, uh, that might be the most relevant and most important pathway in model organisms that show ex expansion of lifespan. For example, in uh, worms, it showed that decreasing the insulin uh, pathway activity allowed them to live up to twice longer, which is amazing. Think about us. Instead of 80 to live to 160, that's a dream come true. So there is a lot of value in insulin for longevity. And uh, I think that uh, in human, we are still learning, but I, I'm sure that there is a lot of potential there. Yeah, no, that's, that's a terrific point. And of course, we know even in humans that, that caloric restriction, which is one of the biggest longevity promoting things in, in all organisms, 
also works. And, and part of what happens when you do caloric restriction, of course, is that your insulin level gets very low and that insulin pathway um, gets lower, as you say. So I, I think there's good reason to think in humans, it's going to work the same as in worms. Now, maybe not twice as long, but you know, that we're going to see longevity benefits from that. Uh, of course, the challenge is that none of us really like the idea of doing that degree of caloric restriction on a regular basis. So then it becomes, all right, what can we do that is it still al allows us to live our lives and have a great quality of life and, and exercise and diet and other things that we can do to control our insulin as much as we can are very important for longevity. You mentioned the myth of people thinking that sugar and carbohydrates are the reason behind insulin resistance. Um, and kind of ignoring fat. And I'm wondering if you have any other thoughts on common misconceptions related to metabolism um, and how they can be addressed. An example that comes to mind is the carnivore diet, which makes me think microbiome, as you mentioned in your story before. But are there any other things out there in popular culture that you continue to see that maybe you can explain briefly why it doesn't work and please stop doing it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you hit on one of my favorites, the, <laughs> the keto diet, carnivore diet. Um, please don't hurt your microbiome that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think with metabolism specifically, so I, I, I touched on the how hard it is to lose weight. Um, and if that is an absolute reality, weight loss, when particularly when you're significantly overweight, is is very difficult. The current you know, recommendations for health are that people lose five to 7% of their weight. And we know that that's beneficial. So that means, you know, if you're 250 pounds, you really only need to lose 15, 20 pounds to see really big um, effects. But the reality is most people will not be satisfied with that because they um, won't feel that they're at the weight that they, they want to be. And so this is such a painful struggle for so many people. And what I do commonly hear, though, and I mentioned this briefly when we were talking about the measurement of metabolic rate, is, is people essentially blaming a slow metabolism. And now sometimes we can induce a slow metabolism by restricting our food intake too much. And I, I do see that a lot in, in chronic dieters, that if they've just been you know, really restricting their calories severely over time, it can cause the metabolic rate and kind of go into this starvation mode, and, and that can make it hard. Um, it's, it's a challenge sometimes to explain to people that to lose weight, you actually have to eat more. I think <laughs> Tina Ornish tried to do that back in the, in the eighties. And, and in many cases that, that can be true, but this again is where having data is so important. You know, know what your metabolic rate is. Are you really only burning 1200 calories a day? I've rarely met someone who was only burning 1200 calories a day, but, um, you know, that will tell you whatever your result is that will help really guide you in a much more scientific way about what you would need to eat to gradually and safely lose weight over time rather than dramatically restricting. So again, that sort of myth of slow metabolism, which sometimes can be to a bit of, gosh, this is hard work and I don't really want to do it. And, and that's where you, you want to get a coach. You want to get some support. This is not something that you necessarily just want to try on your own because it's really hard and it's a lifelong process, to, not just to lose the weight. I think everyone knows you can get the weight off initially, but to keep it off and, and to be able to sustain it, that's when it gets really challenging and having some support around that can be, be very important. I guess the other one that, that I thought about, and, and I mentioned this briefly earlier too, is this myth that everything stays constant throughout our whole lifespan. And that the way I was eating, the way I was exercising, the things that I was doing in my 20s, I can just keep doing for the rest of my life. And, and we know that's wrong because the physiology is changing and you know, every aspect of your physiology is changing as you go through life. And if you want to keep in an optimal state and maximize your health span and your, and your lifespan, then adapting and thinking about it, um, you know, whatever that may mean. And you may decide to do it. You may not. I, I've been a, a Tusca vegetarian for 30 years. And, um, but I've had this thought as, as I've looked at my protein intake and knowing that I need to increase my protein intake as, as I'm getting older is, you know, do I want to start incorporating some other meat foods, animal foods into my diet so that I can do that without having to, you know, eat tons of lentils. <laughs> so, you know, and, and for everyone, that's going to be an individual decision. But, but I, what I do hear a lot is, well, I always did it this way. It was fine. I'm like, well, yeah, but now you're 40 pounds heavier and 30 years older. And, you know, it may be time to 
to rethink that. And with exercise, again, this is how I see people getting hurt all the time is that they, they think they can keep doing the joint pounding muscle intensive types of exercise that they did when they were young in their 60s and 70s and 80s. And often that just isn't the case. It doesn't mean you can't stay healthy and that you can't get all the different types of exercise, including high intensity exercise that you need and want, but it's rethinking how you go about that. So that, that myth of, well, this is just who I am. This is how I'm going to stay. You know, I, I think we actually stay young in part by being more flexible. It keeps our brains flexible, right? If we just think about, okay, what do I need to do differently now? How, how do I need to re revisit my life and, and keep things new? So that's an important piece. I think that that's an excellent point, the flexibility and changing. I used to love running and I, I started to have some specific issue and I, I moved to cycling and now I like cycling and it's a less damaging sport. Uh, so definitely people need to change it. The same with the diet. I used to eat a lot of donuts. Now I cannot eat it because it doesn't make me feel good, but also I know that it's bad for me. Um, so, so there are a lot of examples like that. Uh, but I want to come back to the point about the weight loss, uh, weight maintenance. And I'm sure that you are aware now about the wonder drug, the GLP-1 the agonist. What is your opinion about that? What, what do you think? It's like literally a, a big revolution right now. It is a big revolution right now. It, it is a very hot topic. You know, I think for, for people who are clinically obese and are having health issues because of their obesity, it's, it's a godsend. I mean, it truly has been an absolutely amazing revolution in the clinical obesity world to be able to have something to offer patients, which we never had. I mean, it, when I was working really full-time in, in obesity research and management, um, all we had, we had behavior change and we had drugs that might cause a 5% weight loss which I could get with behavior change. So, you know, it was just like, we, we have nothing new to offer. And so, so this has been a revolution. The, the challenge comes in, of course, when you have people who at much lower BMIs are using it to, and we know that this off-label use is happening all the time. Um, and there are compounding pharmacies that are claiming that they're, they're making it and they'll, you know, they'll sell you semaglutide through a compounding pharmacy. And um, so, so that is a challenge because this is a pretty dramatic and potent drug. It, it basically makes you not want to eat. And someone might say, great, that's exactly what I'm looking for. But the reality is it isn't because your body lives and thrives because of nutrition. You need to be taking in the appropriate nutrients, not just the you know protein, fat, and carbohydrate, but all the micronutrients, the vitamins and the minerals in order to be healthy. And what can happen when people you know literally just stop eating is that all kinds of other problems occur, especially if they do this for, for a long time. So um, it, it's not a magic bullet in that sense. The other thing that I've seen happening is, is people who, it's the getting off of it that's the problem. And, and this gets back to your question about maintenance. Um, the reality is people are not going to stay on this forever, even though that that is the mantra in obesity medicine is that, you know, it's a chronic disease. You have to treat it just like you treat hypertension or diabetes or anything, you take drugs for the rest of your life. Well, these particular drugs are so potent that they will get you down to an unsafe low BMI if you stay on them. Uh, the more practical problem is they're incredibly expensive. And most insurance companies won't pay for them for more than six months or so. Um, and unless people are extremely well off, they're, they're not going to continue to pay for a lifetime, the twelve to $1,300 a month that, that it costs to, to stay on them. So at some point, people are going to be facing that, okay, I have to stop. Now, what happens when you stop? Well, what these drugs have done in the brain is they have shut down for the time that you're on them, all of the hedonic pleasure pathways that you normally get from food. So those donuts that you were talking about and the, that dopamine hit that you would normally get from a, a donut if you, if you like sugar, um, you know, that's been suppressed by this medication. So just like any medication where you've artificially suppressed something, when you take that away, suddenly everything comes back booming. And, you know, you, it may be very difficult at that point, even if someone has been following a healthy diet and learned all of the skills to be able to appropriately manage their, their eating and, and exercise from that point. So 
I think we're in very early days with these. We don't know a lot about what's going to happen when people stop them. Of course, the, again, the mantras will don't stop them, but I don't think that's realistic. I think we probably have to figure out how we want to titrate using them. You know, people may go on them for a while, get to a healthier body weight, stop it with a lot of support around behavior change. And, you know, and then at some point, six months, a year, two years later, if they start to regain the weight, then they go back on it again for a while. So it may be that kind of lifetime treatment rather than a, you're going to take this every day of your life for the, you know, for as long as you live. And so, but we don't know that right now. We don't, we don't have, I think the experience with them long-term and we don't have the studies to show how to really helpfully help people be successful in staying on them and managing their weight long-term, but lots of interest for sure. It has changed the field. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that it's uh, everyone talking about uh, a chat GPT right now and uh, how, uh, and I'm sure that you have a lot of opinion about that, but I think that uh, maybe dogs to agar uh, maybe as a, in a similar revolution, because we always said that uh, those people, it's just on, in the brain and all of that. Now you have a molecular mechanism that show that actually they have something wrong that you, you help them to. So it's also good for them to understand that it's not, it's not me. It's uh, something that I have a problem and that's helped me to solve the problem. I think that it's also in the psychology aspect, it's a, it's, it's a good revolution to explain to them. Yeah, you, yeah. you have a sort of a disease and there is a drug for that. Yes, exactly. I think it is really important for that. Absolutely. Excellent. And uh, unfortunately, we need to wrap up even so we have a lot of questions to continue to ask you. And we usually uh, ask our guests about a top tip uh, for improving health. And what would you recommend our audience to do? Well, I would say given, given my interest in personalized and tailored approaches, you know, it's going to be different for everyone. And so really the tip is know yourself, know your body, know what you need. I think for sure, a lot of people, it's going to be diet, but for some people, it's going to be exercise. For some people, it's going to be stress management. For some people, it may be social, you know, aspects, things that they need to do. And the only way you're going to know that for you is if you really start to pay attention to your body, to know your body, to measure the things that you need to measure, to understand that. And then you're going to know what you need to optimize your health span and your lifespan, um, not what somebody else is telling you that, you know, is just what the average person has to do. So that's probably how I would synthesize a whole bunch of things that I know are really healthy for people into one to say, you got to figure it out for yourself because it's going to be different for everyone. Yeah, I, I couldn't say it better. And actually, that's uh, the mantra of Insta Tracker and Arival, which uh... We haven't had the chance to talk with you about that, about Arivalaton and the company that you helped in. Uh, but uh, luckily for us, we interviewed uh, Lee Wood and uh, right, Nathan Price a few uh, weeks ago. So uh, anyone that is interested about the journey of uh, Arival is welcome uh, uh, to listen to that uh, episode. But uh, definitely uh, you had a big uh, 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 role there and uh, we really appreciate what uh, what you've done. and. Uh, we really appreciate uh, you coming to, to our podcast and uh, uh, contributing your wisdom. And that, that was a, a big uh, a pleasure for us. Uh, so just to sum up, we look forward to exploring uh, the research in the field of longevity each month with you and the leading scientist. For more information, please go to www.infotracker.com slash podcast. Thank you so much, uh, Jennifer. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker, a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit insidetracker.com slash podcast. 